I'm Denny Somak, and this is The Rock Podcast. Now, I'm very happy to present my conversation with Ben Fong-Torres, who is an American rock journalist, author, he's a broadcaster as well, but best known for his work at Rolling Stone magazine. He conducted interviews for the uh, magazine of artists including Bob Dylan, The Rolling Stones, Linda Ronstadt, Marvin Gaye, Sly and the Family Stone, Paul McCartney, and many others. His interview with Ray Charles earned him a prestigious award for magazine writing. Now, many people know him from the film Almost Famous. The fictional version of uh, Fong Torres is one of the most interesting characters in the film. And there's a new documentary out about his life. The title is Like a Rolling Stone, The Life and Times of Ben Fong Torres. It's on Netflix, and the film has a 100% rating on Rotten Tomatoes very rare. I first met Ben when I took KFOG, the top rock station in San Francisco at the time, also Ben's uh, hometown, to London for a week and produced the show. KFOG had asked Ben to come along, and of course, he was great with all the guests. So this is my conversation with Ben, and he discusses his career, and it really is an epic sweep through the world of rock and roll, and his body of work helped define American culture. He became a voice of a generation which changed America forever. So today I have uh, Ben Fonctoris on. Hello, Ben. How you doing? Hey, Danny. Good to be here. And I got to tell you, I'm excited because just uh, like a couple of weeks ago, I went to Netflix and what pops up, number one, is like a Rolling Stone, the story of uh, Ben Fonctoris. So I watched it immediately. It was great. And I said, wait a minute, we got to get got to get you on here. So Forgive me, because I know you're in the midst of doing uh, PR for it. If I ask you some some natural, uh, normal questions that everybody's going to ask, but how did this come about? Because obviously people know you from Rolling Stone magazine, and they obviously know you from Almost Famous, the movie. So right. we figured that's the end of it. That's all we're going to hear about Ben. So how did this come about? <laughs> and that would have been enough, I swear. <laughs> but uh, the way Suzanne tells it, uh, and I, I will defer to her, is that she says one, oh, we've known each other for many years, dating back kind of uh, to the uh, 80s, maybe. She was right. a pioneer journalist herself here in San Francisco as one of the first female Asian broadcasters, both anchoring and reporting. And then she went on and created one of the early portals before they were called websites called Asian Connections. And she right. connected with me to uh, write for it. So I Sure, why not? A personal column called Like a Rolling Stone. How easy can, can writing be, uh, even for nothing? So I did it for a good number of years, and so we were friendly. And one time I was heading down toward her turf, uh, uh, Southern California, to visit with Quincy Jones about a, a book project. And somehow she says that she wound up visiting us while we were having dinner, and that she sat down and the talk got around to documentaries because she had done a short uh, on Star Wars fans. And she said something about how uh, I am in almost everybody else's rock documentaries and histories of the 60s and radio and whatever. So why isn't there a documentary about you? And she says that I kind of flippantly said, well, why don't you do it? And that was about 11 years ago. And so that's probably how it started. That, that's good enough for me. I'm not going to try and rewrite her history. And so uh, 
from that moment on, she began to follow me around to various events, began to dig through archives. I gave her photographs and notebooks and just whatever I had that might be helpful to her. She spoke with members of my family, uh, to Rolling Stone associates, um, and then to musicians that I had covered over the years. And so began to compile this uh, uh, biography. And at some point, I think she determined that it was more than a rock doc, that it should also cover the the real story behind my uh, uh, childhood and young adulthood leading to Rolling Stone. And that was the story of a son of immigrant Chinese parents who came over uh, with false papers and IDs and then created a family out of Oakland, California. And then one of them went on to uh, dig music and, and media and wound up at Rolling Stone hmm. as first uh, Asian American editor of a national magazine. And then at just about the same time, popping up on KSAN, a pioneer freeform uh, FM rock station that um, had uh, taken over from the original KMPX here in San Francisco when the staff went on strike, landed at a former classical station, KSAN. So it was that story. But then she found out now that she needed to tell the story of the 60s and the revolution, the cultural revolution, if not political, both actually, and that I was immersed in some of that because of my being an editor and writer at San Francisco State in 1966. And then the summer of love comes on and I'm on the scene, I'm there. So it's the 60s, it's rock and roll, it's immigration and it's um, a magazine. And so when she talked to my associates at Rolling Stone, she kind of got this sense, wow, I'm getting to hear behind the scenes of how this magazine came to become a phenomenon and who the people were uh, besides uh, Ben and Jan who were part of it. So she spoke to several of the former staffers of Rolling Stone, including the current or, or then current publisher, Jan S. Wenner. So it became a bigger story than she had planned. And so it took just a little longer than she probably wanted. <laughs> And now we have it. So I, I'm sure, being an archivist like I am, what uh, what were the decisions that you had to make going through your library of who you were going to use and and who you weren't? Well, she's the producer and director and writer, so I let her pretty much determine it. I certainly gave her all the material, including compilation books of my articles, and told her who were the most important uh, people to me. And oh, who were some of my favorite interviews? All the same questions you get asked at bookstores and, and other gatherings. And so she knew from the beginning that Ray Charles and Marvin Gaye were uh, very important. Uh, she knew that there were stories behind the stories of uh, Bob Dylan and Ike and Tina Turner. Uh, she knew that I had traced Linda Ronstadt throughout her career from Stone Ponies into a light opera. And um, a few others were kind of just obvious. And so she began to focus on them. And I just gave her whatever cassettes she thought she would uh, want to hear. And she went with it. So it wasn't me choosing. Mm -hmm. it was, but I did choose by dint of my career mm -hmm. and the highlights of those 
uh, of that career. George Harrison certainly comes to mind, one of the most controversial stories that I reported and one of the toughest. And we had audio of George defending himself uh, backstage at the uh, at Inglewood at the forum. So what could be better? You know, so you had to go with certain things. Stevie what, was Wonder, the what was the problem with the George Harrison? Uh, George Harrison went off on this big tour in 1974, I believe right. it was. His the only one, real tour. Yeah, fact. with Ravi Shankar and with Billy Preston. And um, the, the, the thing was that it was a big tour. It was um, uh, very important in his career. Mm -hmm. But as things turned out, he was not, he was ill-prepared for it. He over-prepared and uh, over-rehearsed and therefore taxed his singing voice. His throat was, was right. shot. And he had a certain attitude about the tour. He was not going to give the audience who were paying top ticket prices of the day uh, necessarily the show they wanted. He mm -hmm. was doing the show he felt. And that right. meant Indian music for an hour before he came on stage. Yeah. And that meant no Beatles hits. And that right. meant the two songs from the Beatles that he would deign to do, he would change the lyrics to more reflect his spirituality. So among, with all of that going on, he got critical reviews from the reporters and critics. He had audience members who were puzzled, many of them disappointed because they came as Beatles fans that he could care less about. Right. And his own label people and promoters of the concert were concerned because whatever happened in the first shows in Vancouver and uh, up in the Pacific Northwest would certainly impact the rest of this long tour and mm -hmm. so there was a lot of concern and uh george just wouldn't hear it and yeah. so i confronted him backstage about the early run of reviews and the uh notes of uh, uh concern among his own group and mm -hmm. so he gave a spirited uh <laughs> <laughs> response and it's all on tape and it goes from him lecturing me to uh, singing Monty Python and I'm the lumberjack to me. And so you know, it's a killer interview as it turns out. Then of course, I write the story reflecting the uh, unhappiness uh, with what's going on and all of his and other Beatles fans attacked me for being the messenger of a bad throat. So what are you gonna do? And uh, that's, that just came with the territory and um, that was uh, featured in this documentary. Uh, correctly we'll talk about dylan in a minute but you you won an award for the ray charles didn't you yes the uh, ray charles interview from about 1972 won wow was that 50 years ago wow. won uh the ascap themes taylor award for magazine writing i believe it was and i've always said it was ray charles's award because he provided 90 percent of the, <laughs> the writing by the way he spoke but uh we caught him at a good time for Rolling Stone and, and for him because he agreed with me that uh, he had been bypassed, even though Aretha bought him on stage at the uh, Fillmore West one time and he was still working and still making albums. But, you know, uh, younger white rockers who could emulate Ray Charles's singular delivery uh, were on top of the pops like a Joe Cocker. Uh, also a very nice bloke, by the way, but uh, Ray had reason to be a little annoyed with what was going on and his standing in the scene. So, and he expressed himself quite well. 
something. So how many shows did you see at the Fillmore West? Oh, I don't know. Uh, I, yeah, uh, Fillmore and Fillmore West. And the Fillmore meant years before Rolling Stone because it opened in 66. Right. Uh, and Rolling Stone didn't get, I didn't get going at Rolling Stone till 69. So there were several years of just going there to hang out and see these numerous uh, shows that Bill Graham presented, not to mention Chet Helms um, on Sutter Street at the Avalon Ballroom and other venues. But the Fillmore and Fillmore West, um, maybe eh, not much, about maybe 100, 125 shows probably. You still have your ticket stubs? Nope. <laughs> One I thing you didn't save, huh? I was never a collector. I do have things, you know. I have yeah. stuff for the Bob Dylan tour that I won up Chicago Chicago Stadium. For some reason, I had it around and it stuck around with me. But no, I did not uh, collect uh, souvenirs of my times. Um, for example, I I know that when Bob Dylan made me put my cassette recorder away, uh, just as we started the interview, and I had to suddenly turn and write notes. I don't have those notes. Mm. I have my notebook that shows that I was covering the tour and the set list and a couple of thoughts about the band and the audience. But I think I handed my notebook with my uh, notes about our uh, interview to the researcher and editor. And it never got back to me or it got back to me and it's lost somewhere. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not a good collector. So the, the Dylan was a was a a, a pivotal situation because you were on most of the tour and you just kept trying to get the interview and you you had to enlist Robbie Robertson to help you. What did give me that story? Uh, sort of, yeah. You you got that pretty much all wrong. Um, <laughs> okay, but no, but I'm here to help. So okay, good. No, no, you you got it essentially correct. What happened was that Rolling Stone published a story that took the promoter and the label and Dylan to task because of the exorbitant ticket prices. And I forget what the number was, but it was on the high end, of course, right. a major tour and it's Bob Dylan. So they were pissed at Rolling Stone. So when I then talked to the uh, public relations uh, for person about getting access to Dylan, he said, well, uh, gee, I, I don't know if they really wanna have you hanging around Rolling Stone, you know, uh, but, you know, we know it's you, you've got to cover it. So here, here's our itinerary. Here is our list of uh, uh, hotels. Here's your comp tickets to the shows. But as for getting an interview, I'm not sure we can help you with that. So I was flying over to uh, Philadelphia and Chicago and then up to Canada without knowing that I would, in fact, get the interview that they were planning for a cover story. Uh, three, four weeks away. So I covered the beginning of it. I did a profile of the band and that went in. And I did a report on the first show or two and that went in as a news article, but I was still back there trying to find Dylan. And so one evening in about the third or fourth stop up in Canada, uh, I enlisted Robbie Robertson's help. And I said, hey, I've got a at least be able to say hi to him and see what's going on. And so he said, yeah, okay, well, we, um, you know, we have a little party usually after every show and tonight's is gonna be on the, uh, and he mentioned the floor of the hotel and said, yeah, if you just find yourself there, you'll probably run into him. And so I did. And 
Uh, as it turned out, he was suffering from a cold. Maybe he got it from George Harrison, but uh, <laughs> uh, he, uh, he was just sitting next to an empty sofa chair uh, by himself and he apparently had a cold. So I put on my mask and sat down next to him and said, hello, introduced myself and we chatted a little bit. And then I said, you know, I'd, I'd like to be able to do the interview with you uh, as soon as you're feeling better. And he said, oh, okay, next town, uh, was it Montreal or Toronto or whatever. And so we agreed to do that. And so I was already prepared and I knew that he could be a little elliptical in his responses and his statements. I wanted to have the best eye contact and, and tracing our, turning our interview into a conversation where possible and all of that, the usual things an interviewer does. Mm -hmm. And so then as I sat down with him uh, to, to start the interview, he said, he saw the uh, cassette recorder and said, no recording. And so, uh, good under, impression. Good impression. He was. Uh, well, uh, he's been followed by paparazzi and groupies and freaks, and so he just didn't want his stuff to be possibly out there. And so I had to resort to a notebook and take down what I could. And um, afterwards, did the story, and it, it was well received, and had a full interview with him, and. I didn't hear much uh, from his camp after that. Uh, I dropped out of the tour, returned home. We had other correspondents covering other cities, New York and Atlanta, particularly, and then Los Angeles, and then back to Oakland to uh, wrap it up, I believe. So uh, a little while after that, Jan, the ever the entrepreneur, said, hey, we have this paperback deal with uh, oh, Warners, let's say, and uh, they're interested in a book about the Dylan tour. So can you give me a, a transcript of your interview? I told Jan, I don't have a transcript of the interview. It's just a notepad full of right. gibberish. And she said, no, well, give me what you can. because uh, We'll combine it with all the other stories and your opening story and that cover story. And it'll be a nice little book. So I dutifully went through my notebook and basically recreated the string of conversation and his answers and stuff and gave it to Jan. And they ran it under a title I came up with called Knocking on Dylan's Door. And it published. And then soon after that, I was off to Minneapolis covering Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. And Dylan was there. And I ran into him in the hallway in the corridor of the arena. He said, hey, come over here. I want to talk to you. So um, we, we went off, off to a side area there. And he's, and he's you know. Some, some pleasantries, and then he said, did you have that tape recorder going? And I said, oh, no, 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 you saw me click it off, and uh, it was not easy, but, you know, uh, we did it. He said, oh, okay. Uh, what had happened was that he had seen the book and saw the Q&A transcript format and thought, how the hell did he do that? And so he wanted to be sure that I had not violated uh, or, uh, you know, uh, ignored his wish. And then he was uh, satisfied with it, you know, he had no complaints. So there, so there, uh, I felt rather victorious uh, at that moment that I had gotten it right. So what, what were your uh, top favorite interviews? I know that that's gonna be tough, but I'm, I'm sure you have a list of top three, top five, whatever. Well, it's uh, Ray Charles and Marvin Gaye. Mm -hmm. now, I have also mentioned Diane Keaton, uh, the actor, actress, 
And um, beyond that, I think I might say, I might say Linda Ronstadt, the, the, the body of the work we did together through four different phases of her career, from Stone Ponies to Heart Like a Wheel, to Nelson Riddle, uh, to then I think it was Light Opera, Gilbert and Sullivan. Mm -hmm. And at every stop, we had a chance to uh, do a story for somebody. And I, I just always found her pleasant. I always liked to champion the fact that she was not given the credit uh, that she deserved in the areas of production, of picking songs and songwriters and picking players, including future members of the Eagles. Hmm. And then I would say uh, that I had a good time with Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, not the most fun group of guys, but uh, very candid. You know, that, that's what you want in an interview subject, as you well know that someone is going to open up and be honest not, and be unafraid to say what they want to say, even if they're in an ensemble that can be contentious. So I, I enjoyed them. And locally, I love Grace Slick and uh, um, also Jerry Garcia. And who else? I did a bunch of interviews for mm. a 10-year anniversary for Rolling Stone. Right long strange trip it's been it became a radio special so i ran around and talked to dan hicks and steve miller and um chet helms and bill graham and david rubinson and many many other characters from <laughs> that scene enjoyed all of them that's the thing about that time frame uh the late 60s into the 70s people tended to be pretty much who gives a shit you know i'm just going to tell what i'm going to tell and i'll say what i want to say and so we were beneficiaries of that also, the fact that Rolling Stone grew to such heights in terms of impact and importance uh, so that in many cases, artists uh, were on what you might say good behavior. They didn't like forget the interview, for example, not show up uh, or uh, refuse to answer questions or demand to have a, a, a manager or a press agent nearby to protect them. There was none of that. It was just much more, you know, that's to say that there's a lot of that today. Um, the media landscape has changed so violently over the past 15, 20 years that um, you cannot really get what we were able to have uh, in terms of, uh, of access and in terms of honesty and in terms of, yeah, uh, of fact checking after the fact. Nowadays, you get basically 15 to 20 minutes with the star in uh, a backstage room or maybe a hotel room, but you get your time. There's somebody standing by to kind of listen to what's going on and then you're done. You know, you, there's just no in-depth anymore of like riding uh, uh, in a bus or uh, on a Learjet with an Elton John or Bonnie Raitt or whoever. So those were the good old days. So you got to tell me about your experience with Jim Morrison. Well, um, that was just one of those those chance encounters uh, of running into him really at a, an apartment in West Hollywood where Diane Gardner lived and she was a publicist for um, the Doors and the Airplane and several other bands under the Rogers and Cowan PR banner. And she loved to just host people from the scene could be musicians, could be label heads, could be 
media at her apartment when she wasn't at the office. And so there'd be these little casual gatherings on a regular basis. And, and I would pop in once in a while. And upstairs from her was one Pamela Corson, who the girlfriend of Jim Morrison. And they were buddies. And of course, the doors were represented by Diane Gardner. So this particular afternoon, we were, I was there. She, uh, she was there. A few other folks were there. A couple of kids were there in Diane's apartment. And Jim Morrison comes in looking for Pam. Uh, she's not home. So uh, Diane says, I don't know where she is. But um, you want to hang out? Of course. Got to hang out with Diane Gardner and her salon. So he walked in and, and um, we met. And although we had just done a thorough Rolling Stone interview by Jerry Hopkins a few months before, well, you had Jim Morrison in front of you, so why not take advantage and do something? So I approached him and said, do you, do you mind if we uh, do a little chat for, for Rolling Stone? And he, um, or maybe I didn't say that. Huh? Do you mind if we do a little interview maybe, a chat? And so, yeah, we sat down. And he, he was in a kind of a nice, playful mood. And so he said, hey, how about we do uh, like a late night talk show, you know, like a Cabot. Uh, so I said, sure, I love you know, Carson and Cabot. People throw, I just love the format. So we set up a couple of chairs and he made a wisecrack, a very disgusting, rude joke, a riddle. And uh, so off we went into a really more of a chat because he was asking about San Francisco and Bill Graham and Jan Wenner and the film festival because he was getting involved in filmmaking. And um, then I asked about the blues and the next album and his trip to Europe maybe and what he felt about the criticisms of his film and, and poetry. And it was just give and take. But uh, one of the funny things was that early on, he said, you know, it's on the tape that uh, was put out by Berserkly. You know, at first I thought you were like uh, a foreign exchange student for and working with the Rolling Stones. And so that was amusing. But then, you know, he, 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 got, he, he, he got it that I was, in fact, from the magazine. Uh, I was not a foreign exchange student hanging out with Diane Gardner. And uh, on it went. It was super casual, very friendly. I found him to be charming and intelligent. He was in, in, in good shape, not the best, but good shape. And uh, we had a blast. We went on for about, I think the CD that Matthew uh, Kaufman put out is about 90 minutes. So that's a substantial amount of time. And uh, you happen to just have your tape player with you? Oh, I think we carried it wherever we went. Just okay. the way today everybody carries their phone and camera and recorder wherever they go. But you know, on a professional basis, yeah, I knew that it was best to have that device around. So I captured pretty much the whole thing. All right. So um, have you seen everybody you wanted to see? You mean performers? Mm -hmm. Well, I missed out on... Uh, no, I've seen. Uh, I haven't missed out on too many that I wanted to see. You know, I've seen uh, Prince early in his career, and Springsteen uh, quite a lot, and Elvis, my main man, baby, uh, a lot, uh, enough. And uh, Dylan certainly covered it, and all the local bands. So no, there's. 
there's nobody. Uh, in terms of missing an interview, I would say Elvis. I, I probably could have had it. I did have a chance <laughs> one time to go to Las Vegas and hang out, but uh, I was busy with Steppenwolf. <laughs> I had an appointment with John Kay, so I gave up Elvis for a magic carpet ride. There you are. Okay, so I got to ask you this. Are you one of the voting members of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? Yeah, I am. Do you um, want to give us your opinion of what's going on? There's so much pull and push. And well, what's Danny, what's going on is what's always going on. And that is that it is an imperfect uh, system that they set up. Um, there's a, they are open to tons of criticism. And a lot of it, I think, is warranted. There is a kind of a snobby hipster uh, inside a club kind of feeling to both the nominating and the voting process. The voting is done by, I think, over a thousand people around the country, but how many of them are music professionals? I don't know. How many of the nominating committee are music musicians, artists? I don't know, but clearly, there is a bias against people, uh, artists who are too early uh, in the history of rock and roll or too commercial, too successful, too pop. I'm kind of surprised that Cody Simon and Lionel Richie got in this year, happy for them. I felt like Dolly Parton deserved her mm -hmm. uh, um, honor despite her own protests of being not a rock and roller because the Hall of Fame has, to its credit, uh, reached out and covered a, a number of musical genres, including early histor historic greats in, in blues and folk and country. So I, I have no problem with that. But yeah, there are a lot of people. There are so many sites that list uh, bands and, and artists and singers and songwriters who ought to have been considered. Uh, even, I just read, um, a, a statement by a couple of the members of the Monkees, one saying that they absolutely deserve to be in there because of their impact and their commercial success. Uh, Michael Nesmith couldn't care less. You know, ah, you know they, they're, 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 they're a business. They get to, to set the rules and they, they choose who they want. And that's fine by me. You know, I don't care. And then there are others who are emotional about it because they feel like um, uh, they well de have deserved uh, induction before some of the more recent ones that get in right as soon as they're qualified, whereas they've had to wait 15, 20 years, like in the case of Steve Miller, for example. You know, he was angry all the way in to the induction and into his induct induction speech. And there are those who just curse the hall after they've been inducted. Uh, you know, here you are, Sex Pistol, you're in. Oh, fuck off. You know, <laughs> they could care less. And so they, and they, they, they stick to it. It doesn't matter that they are, they're being offered the chance to be on TV. So yeah, there are a lot of, a lot of uh, problems with it. And yet as a voter, I feel like I, in my tiny, tiny way, maybe I can help to um, move the needle toward uh, a couple of women uh, that I have felt have been um, ignored too long or, or other genres of music. So I look over the list and try to just, you know, to do I, what I think is the right thing. So you've uh, you've written a number of books. Uh, one of my favorites, the Graham Parsons. Mm. Why does Graham Parsons matter? 
well, impact. For so many years, it seems like people had spoken about him as the uh, inventor of country Iraq. He was not, uh, of course, technically speaking, you can say Rick Nelson and the Everly Brothers and uh, whatever Chris Hillman was doing <laughs> might have um, presaged um, uh, um, country Iraq. But Graham was such a, a character, such a, a charismatic person, such a um, musical delight uh, in the way he toyed with uh, uh, the uh, historic country sound and content of the lyrics um, that he stood out and those nudie suits didn't hurt either. And mm. uh, he just had this personality where he was uh, so easy to get along, get along with on a rock and roll level and didn't have the greatest voice uh, and singing style, but uh, you know, he was influenced by Elvis as so many of us of his generation were, and that showed too in his uh, uh, performance. Uh, so I had heard so much about him. I wound up writing a short piece for Esquire magazine about him. And in doing the research for that, just ran into this incredibly interesting story about the Southern family that included suicides and all kinds of, uh, of uh, craziness. And that led him into the International Submarine Band and then the Birds and then the Burrito Brothers and, and Emmylou Harris. And I just thought it was a fascinating story. And so when my agent, Sarah, was at a party uh, in New York, the name came up, maybe partly because of the Esquire story, I'm not sure. But whatever, someone said, you know, is this guy worth a book? There hadn't been one yet, except by a fan of his, a fan and friend, Sid Griffin. Mm -hmm. uh, and so Sarah said, well, gee, uh, one of my writers uh, just just did the Esquire piece on him. And so um, I can check with him and see what he thinks. And so, and by that time I felt like, yeah, this, although he is not known to the general public, the story is so interesting that if it's told fairly well, uh, it, you know, it, it might be able to uh, work for a publisher. And so that's what happened. Okay, couple more things, can't let you go without asking, yeah. aren't we 25 years now from Almost Famous? Isn't there an anniversary it just was or coming up? It came out in either 2000 or 2001. Okay, so uh, we're coming well, up on, a, on an anniversary. We're at 22 probably. Right. Uh, and what's gonna be happening is, as you may know, it's gonna be on Broadway, uh, possibly by the end of this year. It had been planned out and actually produced at the Old Globe Theater in San Diego in 2019, just before the shutdown. And so I was able to see it there. And um, then of course it had to get in line behind all of the other productions that had been scuttled or delayed or stalled by the coronavirus. And so uh, even though Broadway is kind of half lit back up, uh, I don't know what the situation is gonna be for one that hasn't even gone to off-Broadway yet to get in line to be on Broadway. So who knows, uh, but uh, it is done. It, it was cast. I don't know if Cameron has kept the um, cast intact through this uh, long absence from the stage, but um, there is word out now that uh, they hope to have a theater by the end of the year. 
so there's that. And then, you know, I'm not that big on anniversaries. So I am not looking to 25 years or 20 years or whatever of any particular thing, except for my, my wedding, of course. That's the only, and, of course. and the anniversary of when we got our rescue dog. Those are the two things that count now in my life. Right. So you do have uh, the benefit of, uh, of hindsight. Did you, uh, anything different or any feelings about that film now as to when it was being made? No, nope. I've been consistent in saying that uh, it's portrayal of that time and of the romance between a kid and rock and roll and a kid and journalism and a kid and uh, behind the scenes people, the roadies and all of them uh, is, is, is nicely, it's true. And uh, it's a, a bit romantic, uh, but uh, overall it feels about right for the early to mid seventies and that scene. Uh, in depiction of Rolling Stone magazine and me, he uh, is a gifted scriptwriter who knew that he needed a certain story arc, he needed certain kinds of characters, he needed somebody to be more of an antagonist and, and to help push the kid around and push the plot along in terms of him turning the story in to Rolling Stone. And so he drew in broader strokes the character of Ben Fontors. And um, so that is to me not in any way factual. I did not assign him a thousand dollar cover story first time out over the phone <laughs> and we did not choose to believe uh, a stoned rock band over uh, our assigned reporter who had sheaves of notes and stuff to back up what he had written and uh, you know that's just the way it is I, I accept that uh, and the thing is that the bottom line is that it uh, made it so that my name got known again almost wherever I went people who who loved the, the movie would see my name on a credit card or on a restaurant order or whatever and freak out and so suddenly I was known again so I'm, I'm grateful for that and uh, I had fun with Cameron and the crew uh, helping out here and there when I visited the uh, set one time to hang out with the guy who played me Terry Chen and, um, you know, it's been primarily a blast. And Cameron was good enough to sit with me for this documentary, uh, like a Rolling Stone, and gave us one of the more uh, energetic, vibrant, fun uh, segments of the documentary. I, I think he appears a couple of times. I, I forget. Uh, but, uh, yeah, overall, it's been a very, very positive uh, um, influence uh, uh, or, or a, a very, very positive uh, part of my life. And I am very happy that I discovered Cameron Crowe that evening at a Stones concert at the Forum. Right. So real quick, I, I uh, was talking to Nancy Wilson not too long ago because she has a new album out. And she said that there's actually almost a full album of Stillwater and she wants to finish it. Have you heard that one? No, I have not heard that. And she should do it then. Um, I know she was stellar in the work she did for Cameron as part of the music and the soundtrack and the probably song selections and all that that went into uh, the movie and the soundtrack. So yeah, I, I know that there are a lot of, of almost famous fans who would like to hear more from Stillwater, whether it's composed by her or not. But sure, I, you know, of course, it comes down to their relationship and legalistics and finances. But who knows? Maybe, maybe for the anniversary, Cameron will soften up and better do it. Yeah. 
Okay, well, listen, Ben, like a Rolling Stone, it's out, it's available, it's on Netflix. I, on Rotten Tomatoes, you got 100. Do you know Is that? Uh, I'll go take care of that. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, I want to wish you a lot of luck with this. And uh, at some point, we've got to do a part two, but it's been, it was great to see you. So you remember our trip to London that we Vaguely. did? And, no, I remember uh, you, London. Yeah. And you, had, you did some great interviews. So I was thinking at the end of this, I might, as a bonus, run a little bit of one of your interviews. We'll surprise you, okay? That would be fantastic. So that's my conversation with Ben Fong Torres. And as promised, I have a piece of tape from his uh, trip to London in the fall of 1986. And he's interviewing Bob Geldof, who had just released his solo album, Deep in the Heart of Nowhere. Live in London, baby. Emma's here with Ben Fong Torres and our guest, Bob Geldof, who's kind enough to stop down here to Capitol Radio. Good morning, fellas. Yeah, Bob, uh, the song we heard uh, just a few moments ago with Brian Setzer on the uh, album, let me look at the lineup of guests you have on here. You have quite a few big names, and yeah. names, of course, that should be big. I'm wondering if that's a trap. You feel like uh, uh, you can make an album and be judged on the music's merit, or will people always be thinking of you being surrounded by all-star friends? Well, the thing is, I didn't have any um, band to play with this time, and um, I've been working in music for 10 years, so willy-nilly, the f friends of mine are players, and I didn't want it to be Bob Aid, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> so I actually uh, like limited the sort of people, which is not to insult anyone else. As I say, the Amnesty gig was around, and as you probably know, Los Angeles is a pretty boring city. So there was nothing to do. So what the bands did is that they came down to the studio to see what was happening, and I was happening there. <laughs> and so they said, well, could we play to do something? But back in England, then, um, we used Midjur from Ultrafox on the guitar and Eric Clapton. And uh, I'd met Clara Clapton at my stag night. I got married a couple of months ago, and he just read my book, and he kept going on about it. And I said, never mind my book. Do you want to play my album? Hmm. And he said he'd like to. So he came down the next day. And I must tell you, and I'm saying this, I mean, we're going to play a track with Clapton on it, but I think that he is playing the best guitar I've heard him play since Derek and the Dominoes on the four tracks he's played. I mean, it is absolutely outstanding. Sometimes it seems like wherever you go, people come around and you can jam. Uh, recently with Huey and uh, Bruce, is that correct? Yeah, like, uh, two down nights ago in Paris, yeah. We <laughs> did a thing on stage. How did the three of you happen to be in Paris together? Uh, I was doing promotion on my book and record. Huey was gigging, and Bruce was there to see his wife, who was uh, doing a film. And uh, so... We both knew Huey. I went down to see him. I rang him and said, you know, Barefoot? And then he said, yeah. And I said, can we do it? And he said, yeah. So I went down, and Bruce was there, who I know. And um, we did Barefoot, and then we went out, and I gave them some snails to eat with garlic. They were a bit suspicious of this, i got to tell you. But they went for it. They went for it. And, uh, so that was it. And there are snails in New Jersey and Mill Valley, aren't there? There are, yeah. I think so. I think they're covered in oil or something, aren't they? <laughs> I'd like to backtrack here for just... I'd be, like, to interested... Uh, when did, when you were a kid or whatever, when did you first realize that music was the thing that you were going to get into? I mean, what, uh, what did you hear? There was no alternative. I was in boarding school, and if you didn't play sport, which you just heard me say, I didn't. And uh, I wasn't allowed to play music. I used to get beaten for playing this. Really? Yeah. Um, guitar, and I wasn't allowed to change. I'm left-handed, so the guy I borrowed the string, the guitar off wouldn't let me change the string, so <laughs> I learned upside down. <laughs> and I was interested in politics and music more than, I guess, uh, anything else. And and that's what I used to do in school. I started the campaign for nuclear disarmament in Dublin and anti-apartheid in Dublin when I was 14. Wow. So uh, that's what I was into. 
That's great. I was wondering, at Live Aid, you not uh, only had put the thing together, but you had to keep it together, and yeah. you had to bring some people together who maybe didn't want to be together, mm. uh, but for the cause they got together. I yeah. mean, like the Who, for example, was there any particular thing you had to do to get those guys on? Uh, beg. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, uh, no, they were... Uh, uh, what was bizarre was that Pete was completely into it, obviously, and Roger was, which I didn't think would happen, but John... Um, was having difficulty because, as Pete said, Roger can't forgive um, Kenny for not being Keith, and that was the main problem. And they said, they said, look, guys, ask me to do anything, but not that. Mm. And eventually, I said, look, if you play, people would stay alive. It really is down to that simple equation, and that was the final argument. But they did rehearse for 15 minutes, and then that broke up in a fight. <laughs> but nonetheless, I mean, they did do it, and they played brilliantly. So, it was what about working with someone who does not beg normally, uh, Bill Graham? How was that, to work with that kind of a director or producer? Volatile. Yeah. And uh, what what'd you have to do to uh, get uh, Paul McCartney to sing the song to end the uh, Live Aid? A lot. I, I mean, I kept hassling him at his office and hassling his staff, and eventually I wrote to him. And I, I know him, you know, to say hello to him, and uh, I wrote to him, and I said, you know, I mean, because I know what it's like. I could ask to do a million things. And I said, unfortunately, um, this letter isn't to Paul McCartney. You know, and I wrote it normally. Like, this is to Paul McCartney, and I wrote it in large letters. And I said, and that's the one who I'm appealing to now, so forget that I know you. And I just said that for whatever reason, Beatle music evokes memories of lost dreams and things more than any other songs that I can think of, certainly of our generation. And if McCartney plays, there will be X many million watching just to see that event for the first time in eight years. And uh, I asked for Let It Be, because if, if they've ever written a hymn, along with Imagine, mm -hmm. I'd imagine well, that was John's song solo, I thought Let It Be would be particularly apt and was Paul agreeable immediately? Or yes. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. And some of our listeners would like to be able to correspond with you, to write you, to reach you. What's the best way to do that? Well, I won't write back, is the first thing. But I mean, if they can you can buy your book and. Uh, if you want to speak into the void, as I often feel myself doing, um, I can't write back because if they're band aid letters and stuff like that, um, sending money or stuff like that, then that's different. Uh, you can send it to for Duke Street in um, London, West One. Um, but if it's to do with the music or the book, the best thing is to do is to write to Atlantic Records. I do read them, I must say, I read all of them, but I don't write back to them because it takes forever, you know. Mm -hmm. Bob, I'd like to hear another song off your new LP. Uh, is this uh, one of the uh, songs with Eric Clapton on it? It is, and it's called The Beach of the Night. It's a good story, you should listen to it. Um, it's I speak the word, so... Uh, but Clapton's playing wah-wah guitar, which is the first time I've heard wah-wah in years. But this mm -hmm. is extraordinary wah-wah guitar. Mm -hmm. All right. Good track. Bob, we'd like to thank you from the bottom of our hearts for yeah. coming down thank tonight you. and appearing with us this morning on KFOG. Best yeah. of luck on your new uh, record. And uh... So that's it for this episode of The Rock Podcast. Please keep in touch. Go to the website if you have any comments, therockpodcast.com. You can find me on Facebook. You can send me an email at hello at therockpodcast.com. We read all the mail. That's it for now. So long. See you next time.